Recovery Elevator, episode 241. And it's just like, it's our society is just, it, there's just an excuse after an excuse to be inebriated. And I don't think that's good. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we have Dan. He's from Hudson Valley, New York. Took his last drink on July 28th, 2018. And he talks about how he first got sober off of fear and how that has since changed. Alcohol is shit is now out. Pick up your paperback copy or the Kindle version on Amazon and or the audiobook on Audible. January 20th to January 31st in 2020, Recovery Elevator is putting on an alcohol-free Asia adventure trip to Thailand and Cambodia. We've got a couple spots left. Go to recoveryelevator.com, click on the events tab, and you're going to get the full itinerary and details, pricing, etc. This trip is going to be a blast. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone, We need accountability and a supportive community is key in the private unsearchable Facebook groups, cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24 seven access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. So all episodes are fun to put together. They, they all deliver a message. There's a key takeaway from each one, but I love this episode. I do because it shows the power of one of the themes that I've been talking about podcasting about for the previous 240 weeks. And we'll get to what that theme is shortly. So at the recovery elevator retreat that took place in Bozeman, Montana earlier this year at the book reveal, I talked about how we need to read this book with pride. We need to sit on a chair, prop it up, and start reading. In fact, I sat on a stool, propped my legs up on an imaginary footstool, uh, and started reading, right? Um, Oftentimes, when we pull these books off the shelf, we walk up to the register almost like we're shoplifting. I hide, hide the title of the book, buy it, put it in the bag, and we don't want anybody to know what we're reading. I said, guys, we have to shred the shame. That is one of the core focal points of the project behind Recovery Elevator is to talk about this. It's the stigma that forces us to reach our most acute moments of shame, pain, etc. before reaching out for help. In fact, I think the stigma is just as, if not more dangerous than the drug alcohol itself. So we have to talk about this. And there was a beautiful soul named Joni who attended the retreat and did just that after leaving the retreat on the airplane. And so this is an email that I got from Joni. Here goes. I just have to tell you right away about my encounter while reading alcohol shit on the plane home to San Francisco. 
So I'm in first class, and before we even take off, the booze is floating to every seat around me. At noon, the woman next to me orders a Pinot Grigio, and the flight attendant tells her, I'm keeping the whole bottle ready for you, just to let you know, and I'll keep you refilled the entire flight. Joni says, I've got your book out, and I'm underlining passages. Right away, she leans over to me and says, Are you reading anything interesting? I take a deep breath, not wanting to offend her, and then start telling her all about the book and all about you and our retreat we just had. She immediately bursts into tears and tells me she's making an emergency secret trip out to my area to try to help her 24-year-old daughter, who after a recent stint in rehab, which the family also kept a secret, has had a terrible relapse and has binged for days and is now holed up in her apartment, suicidal and about to end it all. The mother has lied to everyone she knows about why she's leaving town, feels she can't tell anyone she knows in Bozeman because of the stigma and shame of it all, and because her entire social circle drinks every day, including her. So I am the first and only person she has been able to confide in during this whole ordeal, which has gone on for a year. She had secretly attended an AA meeting to pick up a big book to take to her daughter, but she doesn't know the first thing about alcohol addiction or how to help her child, and her daughter also feels so totally alone without anyone to confide in. I tell her of every concept you shared with us throughout the retreat, tell her she has just been surrounded by 70 beautiful, happy people at the airport who have overcome exactly what her daughter is going through and try to infuse her with the realization she is not alone and with hope that everything will be okay. After an hour of pouring everything out to me, she calls the flight attendant over and asks her to remove the untouched wine and replace it with water. The flight attendant acts very confused as she carries it away to be dumped out. I notice that the others in first class have been able to hear our discussion and have turned their heads to listen in, which makes me smile. She then proceeds to say that she realizes she needs to think about her own drinking, and after we talk a while about her drinking habits, she concludes that her entire social circle is made up of high-functioning alcoholics. We talk a while, and she starts to entertain the idea of telling the group she is giving it up, but she is worried that her friends will think she is weird and give her a hard time. She talks about an upcoming girls' trip, and we talk about ways she might hold her ground as they get plastered and want her to do the same. By the time the flight ends, we've traded numbers. She's written down the name of your book, your podcast, and Cafe RE, and tells me she's going to order copies for both her and her daughter, and will try to persuade her daughter to listen to the podcast episodes with her. She tells me that she knows it was no coincidence that we sat next to each other on the flight. We hug, trade numbers, and are now planning to have lunch in a few days to talk more. Can you believe it, Paul? Wow, Joni. And yes, I can believe it. You two were supposed to sit next to each other on the plane. But then, Joni, you had to have the courage to pop open the book titled Alcohol Shit on the Plane. There's no tiptoeing around what that book is about. And then when that gal asked you, hey, are you reading anything interesting? Any narrative could be replaced for what you actually were reading. So, Joni, holy cow, nice job. So I respond to Joni and I say, whoa, this is powerful. I would love to share it with the podcast audience. Can I do this? She says yes and responds back with this. And just so you know, Paul, that was the very first time in my decade-long struggle with addiction that I have ever told a soul that I've had a problem with drinking or that I'm doing something about it. So it was my coming out conversation. Pretty damn good one, huh? Yeah, I'd say so, Joni. <laughs> 
Benjoni says, I know you've said so many times that we're afraid ahead of time of what people might think if we say something, but that usually nothing but good things come of it. Hearing you say that time and again on the podcast was a huge part of why I took the risk. And what I have to say to you, Joni, again is, wow, nice job. She then says, and since that initial coming out went so well, I took it a step further today and told someone locally who actually knows me. Yikes. Once again, that conversation went fabulously. She knows of a woman my age in my neighborhood who has been desperately trying to stop drinking, but every time she does, she feels too alone because her entire social circle drinks and she doesn't know if they'd accept her if she stops. She had said she'd give anything to have just one single person to hang out with who also has chosen not to drink and understands the struggle. Within 15 minutes, the friend had connected the two of us, and now we are also meeting up for lunch soon, and now both of us have our first local alcohol-free friend. Amazing! Okay, how incredible is that? So as of 241 consecutive weeks of podcasting, here are the top three themes or most important concepts in order. Number three, community. We can't do this alone, and that also encompasses accountability. Number two, trust and leaning into the unknown. And number one, burn the motherfucking ships just like Joni did. Wow. I hope it's not just me who can see the chain reaction of how far the ripples will go based off one decision that Joni made to simply read a book on an airplane, to pull it out without shame and start talking about it. These ripples will affect lives. Yes, that's plural, lives forever. Listeners, you have to talk about this, just like Joni did. Joni, sweetheart, wow, nice job. And before we hear from Dan, let's hear from today's sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed a higher director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R. ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Cafe Altura. Y'all thought I was going to say Cafe Ari there. I know it. Dan, my man, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Paul? Dan, I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. Let's get right into this. When was your last drink? July... 28, 2018. So it's been about a year and a week. Nice job. A year and a week without alcohol. How's it feel? You know, it feels great. I'm probably about 35, uh, 36 pounds lighter. You know, I'm, I'm a cyclist uh, for a hobby and uh, it's done wonders for you know my health. 
my executive physical was probably the best I've ever had. And, you know, it certainly had a lot of benefits. Wow. About 35 pounds lighter. Let's, let's dive into that for a second. Is it just removing sure. alcohol or is the fact you, since alcohol is not in your life, you've been able to work out harder or more often? It's probably all of the above. I mean, my diet's been a little better. It was never bad, but I would say when I started adding up the alcohol calories, if you add it up and say, you know what, I have two, three beers a night, let's say or five beers a night, and then you might have a cocktail or a Sambuca or something like that. If you add it up, it could be 10,000 calories a week. Or in other words, it's two healthy days of food. So you, even though you're working out, it's kind of counterproductive. Wow, that is incredible. And I look forward to diving into your story. Listeners, Dan emailed me something back on July 23rd. I read it. I was like, yeah, let's get this guy on the podcast. It's sort of a untraditional route into an alcohol-free life. Um, before we get to that, yeah. Dan, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Well, I'm a, a father of three, daughter in college, and all the way down to a 14-year-old, and uh, you know, I've been a retail executive for many years, and what I do for fun, I'm from Philadelphia originally, so I'm an Eagles fan, and go. I uh, live in New York, and uh, what I do for fun, I'm a cyclist. I mean, that's uh, pretty much what I do. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of good times doing that. What's your longest <clears throat> bicycle ride? Uh, maybe 130 miles in a day. Yeah. Oh yeah. In one shot. Yeah. Wow. I just, I did a century recently. My normal rides are about, I don't know. I wrote today. I did a quickie. I did 18 miles just zipping along, but usually it's about 30, anywhere between 25 and 40 miles, 30 be about the average. Wow. I do that about four or five times a week. All right. Well, Dan, give listeners background with your drinking. Describe perhaps how much you drank. Um, how did you attempt to moderate? And when did you first realize it was a problem? Or with you, Dan, did you even recognize it was a problem? Get us up to speed. I'm excited to hear your story. Well, you know, probably since I was in high school and uh, all through college, uh, certainly in the business world. And, you know, it's part of uh, the business uh, fabric of society. It, it's everywhere. I mean, it's the more I look at it now I'm, as a non-drinker, I mean, they even have Halloween drinking evenings when you take your kids around drinking. I mean, it's everywhere, and I was part of that, and I didn't really realize it was an issue. I hadn't had any epiphany like a pullover or a DUI or anything of the sort, but, you know, my wife was beginning to say, hey, man, you need to, to back it off, and I, I was at the point where I was drinking several drinks uh, due to pressure a day. I come home from work, I'd have maybe five, six and uh, that be, that's a, that's an issue. Well, hang on, hang on. Let me back uh, up for a sec here. You, you didn't really realize it was an issue or think it was an issue, but your wife was saying, mm -hmm. let's, let's tone it back. Describe that a little bit more. Oh, she's seeing something that you're, you're not. Yeah, she's, she's a, really a non-drinker. Uh, always, a, not a teetotaler, but she'd have a half a glass of wine or something like that. And, uh, you know, and then when it, she'd have to drive home from a restaurant or something like that, and, you know, it was becoming an issue where, you know, uh, she'd tell me, don't have any drinks because, you know, you're going to bring the kids to here. That, that became a bone of contention a bit. Gotcha. And it wasn't, it wasn't registering with me, though. And sure, it's often mm -hmm. we're a couple laps behind the progression of the drinking. And you mentioned earlier it, mm -hmm. was, it was the stress of the job. You'd come home to unwind. Um, was there a progression mm -hmm. in that? Did you, was it like a couple drinks, which, which morphed into five? Well, it became a progression with, you know, several influences in my life, you know, people, uh, friends that you have, and I joined a country club, and, 
it's funny, country club people are um, impervious to alcohol, is the quote. It's not my quote. I'm stealing it from someone else, <laughs> an announcer. He said, you know, they, they drink so much they're impervious to alcohol. And you fall mm-hmm. into that group, and, and then it just becomes, you know, I never really drank hard liquor, and then I started drinking vodka, and I started drinking things, you know, vodka that, and, and more, you know, other uh, mixed drinks, and, and that's stuff that I never did before. And that then before long, you, you, you want to have not just a beer, but you have a vodka, then you finish that off with a couple of beers, and then you fall asleep, and that puts you to sleep, and it just isn't good. So I was actually at a point where I was trying to figure out how am I going to quit, you know, and then I had an epiphany. <laughs> the hand of God gave me an epiphany. <laughs> oh, okay. Before we get to the, the, the hand of God, the epiphany that you were delivered, talk yeah. to us about how you said, how can I quit? I need to quit. How can I quit? Is that what you just said? Yeah. And, you know, I actually called a, um, a hypnotist, Oh, believe it or not. Okay. I said, you know, I, I just didn't feel I could do it on my own. And I knew I needed to at least back way down or do whatever. So I called a hypnotist, a well-known one in New York. And I said, can you help me with this? And she's like, well, yeah, I can. And then I just never followed through. <laughs> like you never met with the person, the hypnotist in person? No, sir. Okay. So <clears throat> what I'm hearing is you, you verbalize, you're like, how can I quit? You pick up the phone, you took action. Mm-hmm. And like four or five episodes ago, maybe longer, I talk about once the intention is clearly set, it's definitively placed out there in the universe, internally and externally. Um, they rarely go unanswered. <laughs> so it sounds like yours was answered. So take it from here. Yeah. So believe it or not, I, I wasn't drinking during this and I wasn't drunk. I was, I was heading to have beers in the afternoon and I had to go in a business meeting the next day across country. And I was doing a charity ride for the wounded warriors. And it's just a charity, not a race. I do race. And it wasn't a race. It was just a charity bicycle ride. And I'm on my very expensive bicycle and um, riding along and I crossed wheels with the guy in front of me, mostly my fault, but somewhat his fault. He hooked me and I went down and I was, I uh, gave my daughter my newer helmet. I had an old race helmet on. It slid to the side and uh, I got my first helicopter ride. I had um, a traumatic brain injury. I had ribs sticking out of my body and uh, it broke every rib on the left side of my rib cage. I broke my radial bone I broke my teeth. I broke my sinuses. Uh, I had a little break in my back, and they didn't know if I would cognitively come back to a normal state. It was very wow. scary. So I was flown. I was flown to Westchester Medical Center in New York, and uh, they did a wonderful job uh, with me. Wow. And is this on July twenty um, eighth? Uh, it was on July 29th. July twenty ninth of last so year, two thousand eighteen. Be- okay. Yes, the the night before I had my last drink, I I drank some. I I don't even remember what I drank. I drank vodka probably. I drank a couple of beers. I probably took it easy because I had a ride the next day. It wasn't a long ride, so who knows? Maybe I drank a few too many. I don't know what the hell I drank. Sure, but and, uh, and real quick, how far before July twenty eighth or July twenty ninth the accident date was the call with the hypnotist? Maybe a month. Okay, okay, gotcha. So what happens and, after and then this I accident? Just didn't, well, I was in the hospital funny because you know you have a brain injury and you're sitting there and your wife's there and i think i'm at my meeting on the west coast so i say to uh the uh nurses or whoever the you know the doctors i said oh yeah i think i'm at the hotel bar where i normally go and i tugged them on the shoulder i said can you go over and get me a drink off vodka club soda with uh some you know you put some lemon in that yeah we can get you jello buddy that's about it (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, my wife, and they just nodded, and they were like, "Oh, okay, cool." You know, so and then I said, "Where's my drink?" And then I pass out. You know, yeah. <laughs> they, they like, give oh, this me guy, some med- this guy's medicine. Serious. Yeah, and then you know, and it was um, at one point. I have a daughter who's epileptic, and uh, you know, at one point they're giving me some medication, and I'm like, "What are you giving me?" And they said, well, "We're giving you Keppra." And I said, "Well, how many milligrams?" And they're all kind of chuckling. And they said, 250, Dan. And I said, no, no, that'll be all right. How many times a day? And then I pass out. The doctor said to me, well, what are you asking? I said, I have a daughter that's epileptic. I kind of understand that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to know what you're putting in me. But going through that uh, thing, I sat with the doctor and they said, because you, you have a traumatic brain injury, you really can't drink. And I go, the first thing you want to do is you want to come home and have a drink. Resume your life. Yeah, get out of the hospital and, and go back to routine. Exactly. And I had a full bar in the basement. I have a commercial kegerator with two spouts and, you know, uh, you go, the works. It's a very nice setup. And people would come to my house for football and, and all that stuff. And the drinks would flow. And it's all, you know, it was all free. <laughs> they just come over and, you know, I'd take care of it. And it was a lot of fun. Nobody ever got any trade. You know, it was anything bad, but it was problematic. Uh, and what happened was, you know, I got home where they told me, if you have a drink before Christmas, you could have a seizure. Now, I know what that is, so I didn't want that. And they said up to a year, you could even have a stroke, especially if you drink too much because of the nature of your brain injury. So I was like, okay, really? I can't have a drink? <laughs> you know, I'm like, this is, this is messed up. So uh, my wife, God bless her heart, removed all the cakes of beer that were in the, in, the cake, in the bar and removed all the alcohol from the house, every drop. So I'm looking around for all the booze, and it isn't there. And so when did you when did you go back home? How long were you in the hospital for? Ten days. Ten days. Okay. So I was you're lo- back at home. I was, lo- I was lucky to get out. I was lucky to get out that quickly. You're back at home, no mm. alcohol in the house. What was that mm. like? Oh man. You know it was bad because you know the, the nurses were like you know, I was having like like seizures type of things because of my brain injury. And my brother was like, you know, it's probably because of the drinking and and this and that and you know, I'm like and I'm not so sure. My doctors weren't so sure, but coming back and not having anything there, it was definitely, it was, I'll give you an example. It was as if I was thrown into an ice cold pool. I was sleeping and someone threw me in the pool. Now I can swim, but it was a shock. And uh, that was, that was part of it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I just dealt with it the best I could. Dan, that's a great way to describe it. And I know a lot of listeners will <clears> resonate <throat> with that analogy. For me, when I first removed alcohol in my life, it was like the volume level on everything was turned up. Traffic, encounters mm-hmm. with strangers at the bank, at the grocery store, um, emails, food, like everything was just turned up. It was so it was so raw. And yeah, it, it can be easily be, be, be compared to an icy bath. Dan, let's back it up just a second here. I want to talk to you about mm-hmm. the moment when you said, I have to quit, the progression. Was there anything in there? So you're having like five drinks a night after a stressful day at the job. There had to been some painful moments, and your wife is saying it's time to quit as well. Can you dive deeper into like an individual moment? Was there like a mini rock bottom? Or is this something you're just like, hey, I need to ditch the booze? Yeah, it was, I needed to do it. And my brother told me, you need to go to an AA meeting. And this isn't going to come out for a lot of listeners very well, but I walked down into my village and I walk into town. I have a brain injury. So I kind of, I can't drive. And they took away my keys and they didn't take my license at the time, but 
I, I kind of staggered out in the street, <laughs> go into this AA meeting that was like, I just didn't belong. And maybe it wasn't the right one. A lot of people tell me it wasn't, but it wasn't for me. And some of the people said, what the heck are you doing here? And I was like, I don't know. I got a brain injury. <laughs> so, and not that I didn't belong, but it didn't fit me at the time. And I got angry. I got very angry. Angry that you were, you didn't feel like you belonged there or describe what, yeah, describe the angry feeling. I got angry for a lot of reasons. I think because uh, people thought that I was in bad shape and, and I thought I was in bad shape and I was mad at myself for getting in bad shape. And I, I was very determined to uh, prove anybody, everybody wrong that I could do this and, gotcha. and stop uh, drinking. And I'm a very determined person. I grew up in Philadelphia and, uh, you know, I achieved some heights in my professional career and, you know, and I, I just was very determined. And I, I said, you know what? Fuck them. I'm going to make this work. And uh, I came home I, and I just, uh, I was very, I was just very determined. So that was, that's, that's kind of my story. I wanted to prove everybody wrong. Well, here we are a year after your accident. Um, and I want to ask you the question, did that determination soften? Are you still rolling forward without alcohol? Like I am going to fucking show them. How are you feeling now? It's a little bit of that. Yeah. I'm going to show them. And it's a little bit of, I, I like the way I feel and I like the way I look. Real quick. Who's them? I'm going to show them. Who's that? Some of my friends and my, and my brother and my family, not my wife, but my, my family that don't think it's possible. Okay. And a lot of people that continue to drink, they don't think it's possible. Sure. And I'm here to, I'm here to say part of the reason I called in, now mine is very unorthodox way that this happened, but it is possible. And you can be anyone you want to be. My whole life, people were putting me in a box and defining me. This is what he is. Oh, we know who he is, you know, but no, you can be anyone you want to be. And, Dan, and you can reinvent you yourself at any age. And Dan, who do you want to be? That's a good question. I want to be the best person that I can be. And I want, I want to really be a person that doesn't uh, rely on alcohol to medicate. And that's something that I was doing that I realized now that I'm sober. I realized I was using alcohol to medicate my tensions. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Let's dive into that a little deeper, using it to medicate the tensions. <clears throat> Anything else you're using it to medicate? And there's guys, there's nothing wrong with self-medicating with alcohol. It worked for me for a long time that it didn't, created more problems than relief it provided, had to go. Is there anything else you think it was medicating? Would perhaps maybe the all show them, like maybe you thought people wanted you to be somebody different. Um, what else do you think it was medicating? I think it was making me a little more social. You know, I was more the life of the party, but now I realize that's probably not me. Gotcha. You know, I was a little more outgoing and things like that. And, you know, it's funny because I talked to my therapist about this and I don't have the same group of friends. She said, don't be surprised if you lose, you know, there's people that were very close in my life, near and dear, that really aren't my life anymore. It's not my decision. It's just that because I guess I just met them at bars and we have drinks and talk about innocuous things. And that was our relationship. Smart therapist. Uh, let me ask you this question, Dan. So the doctor said you can't drink for X amount of time. There was a six-month window, I believe, a seizure was a possibility, then a year-long window. 
the threat yep. or the uh, the chance of a stroke. Now, did you have in your mind those two dates? I hit six months. I'm free and clear of that. Uh, another six months, I uh, then I'm free and clear of the stroke. Was there some part of your mind that said, I'm not drinking for a year? And when that hit on July 28, 2019, was there any thoughts like, okay, today's the day we're having a drink? No. And as a matter of fact, I went to a business meeting on that day, the meeting that I was supposed to be at. And I was a year late for the meeting because it was next year's conference. And I went there and I went to the whole conference and didn't even look at it. Wow. I was just, I'm, I'm very determined. And the funny thing was, I'll tell you an epiphany that I had with this whole thing. I get an executive physical every year. And it's one of the ones they do scan and they do, you know, the whole jazz and your blood work and everything. It was the best physical I've ever had in my adult life. My cholesterol was finally under 200. It was a little over 200. My blood pressure was down 116 over 70. My weight, as I said before, everything was in the green, man. So I'm sitting there looking at my doctor. I said, and he's had me in these physicals before. And I looked at him. I said, can I, can I have a glass of wine now? And he looked at me, leaned across his desk, looked me dead in the eye. And he said, why the fuck would you? Yeah, okay. Just like that. And I looked at him like a dog looks at you when he doesn't understand what you're saying. My head's kind of cocked. <laughs> I look at him like, uh, he goes, these numbers, you're 58 years old. And you have numbers that people in their 30s would kill for. And he goes, you're an athlete. He goes, he goes, why would you? And I said, you know, that just stuck with me. And I think that helped me not look for it at those benchmarks. Well, can you answer that question? If you asked him, can I now have a glass of wine? And he's asking you, well, mm -hmm. why would you, Dan? Can you answer that question? Why would you? Oh, no, that's a good question. I never thought about it that way. But, uh, Paul, I never thought of that. Uh, I guess to be social, that, was, that would be the answer because I'm missing that social aspect. Okay. Um, I do, I do miss that. I, I miss the social totally, part of it. Totally fair. Totally fair. And, and here we are a year away from alcohol. What do you think is mm -hmm. the source of your sobriety fuel? How are you staying away from the booze? Well, this, this gets even more complicated without getting too revealing. My, my wife had uh, one of the cancer genes. So, and her sister died of breast cancer. And that's when I, we all started drinking more heavily. We lost her a few years ago. Shoot, sorry to hear that. And um, my story is really complicated. But what had happened, my, my wife and her other sister had the BRCA gene. So my wife was very courageous and had preventative surgery. It's a very, it's a guts, it has, takes balls to do that. And she looks great, feels great. And she was never much of a drinker, but about, you know, before that she didn't drink. So she hasn't had a, had a drink for two years, over two years. She had that surgery before my injury. And my daughter was in the hospital before that with epilepsy. So my wife spent like most of the last year in the hospital. <laughs> it's just, it's just messed up. But, you know, she hasn't drank and I have a lot of support at home. And we've been married 27 years, but I didn't marry a girl that said, you know, well, you're drinking you know, and, and I'm going to have my cocktails. She doesn't drink. So that made it easier for me. But I will tell you this, and this is going to throw the listeners on their ear. This is when I really realized I had a problem right before, maybe a few weeks before I crashed, she wasn't drinking because she had this, you know, she changed her life and it's better that way. Even afterward, there's just so much better about it health wise. And I was drinking heavily that day. And I looked at her, I said, you want to drink? And she said, no. I said, you know, we're going in different directions. You're not drinking and I'm drinking. I mean, this isn't working. 
26 years of marriage, I looked at her, I verbalized. I said, you know, this, this really isn't working. I don't think we're going to make it. You're, you're not having anything to drink, and I'm drinking. And, you know, we're going in different directions. I said it just like that. Huh. So hang on. So two weeks before the crash, you verbalize mm-hmm. it. You say, look, we're going in two different directions. I'm not too confident this is going to work out. About two weeks before, mm-hmm. you call a hypnotist, leave a message, don't meet in person. But that's not even the most important part. The fact is your intention has been set. You took action, reached out to a hypnotist. You, you verbalized it internally, perhaps externally, mm-hmm. said, hey, I need to quit drinking. Two weeks later or a month later, you have the accident. Um, and before I hit the record button, you say it was a blessing after the accident of course when you're in the hospital it's hard to see it that way but a couple months later sounds like you saw it for what it actually was um maybe it was a compassionate universe saying hey dan um you two are going in separate directions but you know i'm gonna put you back on the same direction talk to us about how this this crash on this charity bike ride event might have been the best thing that could have happened to you Uh, she sat with me um my whole family you know they're in tears and they didn't even know if i would speak normally then one day I sat up, and I said, get me the F out of here. And they said, okay, he's back. Welcome back, Dan. <laughs> you know, I missed, I missed a lot of work, and, you know, a couple months of work, and, and I was not back. And even I went back to work too early. But, you know, really when you're going through that and you can't really function right, and you realize, you know what, it, I would wake up. I, I got to be honest with you. I'd wake up, and I was, my equilibrium was off. So I wake up in the morning, you know, you sit up in bed. I would have to sit there for like 30 seconds and stop the room from spinning. I built a, a weight bench for my son. I stood up real quick and I was grabbing the walls like I drank a fifth of vodka only for about 10 seconds. <laughs> you know, then the room stopped spinning. I'm like, OK, I better not drink while I have this head injury because that would be really, really bad. And then I have a friend who had a, a brother of his friend had a car accident with a traumatic brain injury, as I did. And they went to a backyard party or a party at someone's house. They started drinking and he had a, a, a stroke and didn't wake up. Oh, wow. And I've had friends that have had strokes. I've had friends that have had, uh, I have one friend that had a massive stroke. And he's better now, but, you know, I had another friend, my brother-in-law's brother had a stroke and he's uh, changed forever. So, you know, if it was like drink and have a stroke or, <laughs> you know, or don't drink, that was a motivation for me because I've seen the after effects of it. And Dan, those are all valid reasons. We definitely don't want to have a stroke. But are you perhaps aware that you might be staying away from alcohol out of fear that something bad is going to happen, such as a stroke, such as a seizure, uh, et cetera? Yeah, to a small degree, I would say that that would be like 10% of the reason I've stopped drinking. The other, it's probably 40% that I just want to show everybody like, yeah, I got to do this as long as I want to do it. You know, because that's just the way I am. I'm a pain in the ass. From Philadelphia. Do yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't want me to do that. It's typical, right? Uh, you don't want me Dare. to do that. I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and then the other part of me is just I, I like uh, I like how I feel a lot. And I can if I could say that to you, Paul, and I know you know this. You're very. I love your podcasts, and I think you're you're a brilliant man. And what you're doing for people is amazing. And my story is really mundane compared to others. But I will tell you this, you feel so much better. If you, if you do a little bit of exercise, whatever you like to do, or even if you just like to garden, or everything is better. You, you have more energy and you have more focus and, and whatever your hobbies are, they just become enhanced, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's the holy grail of what we get in a life without <clears throat> alcohol is everything is enhanced. 
sure the lows can be low, but the highs are going to be that much higher. Dan, you've got an incredible <clears throat> story. You do. Everybody's story is incredible. Yeah. Um, this is a unique one. Yeah, man. Um, but I love this because there were some synergistic events that happened before the accident. Um, and there was a time in my life when I would have read this story and heard about it and be like, oh, dude, you just got an accident. It's, there's really no coincidences here. But uh, I, I have had experienced some synergies in my life where, I don't know, once this intention to move forward in life with alcohol has been clearly set, um, watch out. It's yeah. going to be heard, and you're going to start to see some external obstacles line up, some external things that are there. They appear as obstacles, but they're there to help you. And for you, it, it was 10 days in the hospital. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's funny because I'm no different than, in, than many businessmen and businesswomen, I should say, business people, business folks. I'm no different. Uh, there's a lot of acceptance for drunkenness in business. And nowadays, I mean, we have uh, places that do – arts and crafts and they sell wine and, and everything's got alcohol attached to it. You know what I did the first year, Paul, I started counting and I'm sure everyone's done this. who listen to this podcast. You start going through each of the holidays and go, Jesus Christ, is there another drink in holiday? <laughs> I mean, everyone is like, I want, you know, I went to Thanksgiving. Okay, fine. You know, then, then you've got, you know, you've got Christmas and you've got New Year's. And then you've got the Super Bowl. And then you've got Valentine's Day. And then you've got the uh, NCAA Final Four. It's St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. I missed that one. <laughs> and it's just like, it's our society is just, it, there's just an excuse after an excuse to be inebriated. And I don't think that's good. I mean, we used to, we used to give away four bags of candy at my house in Halloween. Now they had a, a Halloween event in town where all the parents are going out and they're going to, from uh, shop to shop having cocktails with their kids having candy. I mean, really? Is that what it's all about? Yeah, I mean, it's wine yoga. It's goat yoga <clears throat> with wine. Everything is contemporaneous ah. with wine. However, I have started to see articles on mainstream news outlets. I get articles sent my way all the time. It's starting to soften. We're starting to have the conversation, and people are starting to wake up that alcohol is shit. Um, I, I think the book yeah. that I have titled Alcohol is Shit is going to hit at the right time, even if the book is good or bad. Just simply that title, people are going to start to say, huh, you know what? I'm starting to question what role alcohol plays in my life. And um, I think we maybe have hit the high water mark. In fact, Americans are drinking, are drinking less alcohol three consecutive years in a row. And millennials who are just plowing through avocado toast and, and sprinter vans, they're yeah. drinking less. They're having their drinks at later, later ages. And some of them, they're just not drinking at all. Uh, not all of them, but you get the point there. And, and Dan, you've heard me ask a little bit about the source of sobriety fuel or the source of what's moving you forward in an alcohol-free life. We eventually want to get to the point where there's no fear and there's no I'll show you them attitude. But my, my journey resembles yours identical, right? So I, I had a failed suicide attempt in 2014. And when I quit drinking, there's about 10% of me that was like, oh, shit. Probably more than 10% was out of fear of what will happen again if I drink. Mm -hmm. um, and another... 30 to 40%, shall we say? I read a stat that 5% of 5% of people make it to two years. That's 2.5 people out of a thousand. Um, it's a shitty stat. Now, listeners, keep in mind, you can start over as many times as you want. I read that stat and I, for goodness mm. gracious, I forget off the top of my head, a reputable site, right? And uh, I was like, well, I'll fucking show them. And then 50% <laughs> was about the same. I was like, look, man, I'm losing weight. Um, I'm having great workouts. Me and my dog, Ben, are having great hikes, great mountain bike rides. But over the last couple of years, I've, I've done my best to, to tip the scales, to ditch the, uh, to ditch the thought of something bad will happen. And like, I'll show them mentality to look like this is, 
this is the best opportunity that I that I'll have in my entire life. Does that make sense, Dan? Where we want to go with this? Yeah, I think that's a big help. One one of the reasons I I called you too is to it would be cathartic for me to speak with you and to put it out there. And you know that's part of the process. I, you know I don't make excuses for it. I don't say oh I quit drinking because I hit my head. Initially that was the the thing, but I think. I'm starting to turn the corner where I'm starting to see a better life. My oldest daughter in college, she doesn't drink. And, you know, I'm really the odd man out in my household. So I always was. So now I'm not. And I'm feeling a little more connected. And I'm feeling a sense of purpose with it. Like, you know, maybe I can get the most out of my life and not just uh, go from drink to drink. Dan, you just dropped a that big value bomb. I'm feeling a little more connected. All right. The opposite of addiction is connection. Talk about that connected feeling. Yeah, connected to life and not the alcohol. See, when you're drinking, you're thinking you go to pick a restaurant and you think, well, do they have booze? You know, is that where I'm going? I'm not going to go there. They don't have any booze. I have a friend that opened a, a bar, but he doesn't have his alcohol license. So we're go- he says great food. So we're going there to eat. I have my Diet Coke. I haven't given up Diet Coke, unfortunately. You know, we do that, but I feel more connected to my family, if that makes any sense. You know, my daughter's a singer and uh, the son's an athlete. And my daughter, middle daughter has epilepsy and you know she'll never drink. But you feel more connected and you can understand. And my wife's situation, you can understand. And it makes perfect sense, uh, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Connection. We're all going for it. Every living thing, especially human beings. We're striving for a connection. We got that connection with alcohol. That time in our life is no longer serving us. It's time to get it in a different way. Dan, I got one question before we hit the rapid fire round. What's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? <laughs> well, I'm gonna go. I, I go. I haven't gone to my first sporting event uh, without doing that. I don't see what that's like. Whatever that sporting event may be, but you know, certainly, I think uh, continuing racing on my bicycle would be. That's certainly on my bucket list. I haven't done a race yet. I'm in pretty good shape, but I'm about ready to do that. I also got to say, way to get back in the saddle after an accident, bike racing. You're like, man, I just want to bike race again. Good job. Thanks, Paul. You know, I started out, I, I was in the car, and I'm a mess, and somebody's in the back seat, maybe my brother or somebody, and they said, what are you going to do with your bikes? I have Some people have boats, some people have cars, I have bicycles. So <clears throat> I said, you know, my voice is squeaky, and... I was not with it. And I said, I'm going to ride them. <laughs> and, and, and the people in the back seat, I don't even remember who the hell they were. And they started laughing. And I looked over at my wife. I go, what do you think? And she goes, of course, you're going to ride them. And I nodded my head like an affirmation, like, yeah, you bet I'm going to ride them. I had something to prove. It's Dan Force is going to ride his bike. Yeah. The first time I did, I got on my Peloton bike in the basement, which is carpeted and everything. Of course, there's no bar. And I got on it and I wore my helmet and I rode it for five minutes. I thought that was good. And then I rode a rail trail and I, yeah, I just progressed. But you know, funny story, I didn't add this in, Paul. Where a really big moment for me, I sold my bar. I sold my kegerator thing. It was a Perlick, a nice one with two taps and, you know, the whole thing. And I put it on Craigslist and, and I sold it and people wanted it. And, you know, I sold it to a younger guy, you know, young couple. And I, I said, give me 500 bucks for it. And he's looking at me like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I said, I'll give you all the shit with it, too. I'll give you the tools. I'll give you a couple of CO2 containers. I said, these ones are full. He goes, you're going to give all this to me with it. I go, yeah, I'm going to give it to you. I said, just take it easy with it. 
Hey, he looked at me and goes, thank you, sir. I said, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so wow. that's how I got rid of my bar. There you go. So, people, I, yeah, people, I, places, things need to go in our new life. Nice job. Yeah, so that's what I did. And, you know, there's no booze in the house, and I got rid of that. And I just used that space for a little bike shop. You know, uh, I, I have a you know a countertop and I, where I can fix my bike, and I got my Peloton there, and I got another trainer, and you know, it's that's those are my gadgets. Love so, it. That's how I replaced it. And Dan, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Yes, sir. I'm ready. All right. First question: What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? When the doctor leaned across, when I had my executive physical, the doctor leaned across his table when I asked him if I could have a glass of wine. And he said, why the F would you? Your numbers are great. And I was like, okay. You know, that was one thing, you know, I could drink again. And I said to myself, you know what? Why? Why am I going to drink? He's right. Why? And next question, what's a memorable moment a life without alcohol has given you? A better connection with my children and my wife. Now, I, I will say what I will caution people is when you do stop drinking, you have some bridges to mend, some th- roads to repair. And you may have said certain things that, that are regrettable, like I divulged to you earlier in the interview. And you got to mend them bridges. That's the only way I can describe it to you. But it is, it does give you an opportunity to do so. Dan, what's your favorite poison-free drink? Diet Coke. I drink too much of it. But I'm trying to stop that, too, because it's not good for your health. But I do like a nice latte. I go to a place called Il Freno. It's uh my bike shop's a uh, coffee shop, and uh, they, they got the best latte around. Your bike shop has a coffee shop? Yeah, in, uh, in Park Ridge, New Jersey. It's a high, it's top 100 bike shop in the country, cycle sport, and I ride with them. But underneath, they, they have a coffee shop with pastries and noshes. So when we all get together, so you got to associate with the right people. We all get together after a ride, and we have a little, uh, little latte refreshment, or you have yourself an espresso, and, and you do your thing. That's a damn cool village. Love it. Next question. What are some of your favorite resources? My favorite resources would be, you know, my family, uh, cycling. You know, I have a lot of resources uh, at work, like health-wise, too. You're getting your executive physical, keeping track of, of, of your numbers and things like that. It, it helps keep you on track. When you see results, uh, tenable results, definable results, then you're like, you know what, I can, I can do this thing because I'm getting these results and, and, and I can see it on, you know, on, on an app or on a piece of paper. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? <clears throat> I'm going to give you a parting piece of guidance that I give managers that work for me, especially young managers and, and employees. You know, it's not all about work. Life is a balance. And the more pressure you're under, you need a release and you need a hobby. You need something. For me, it's cycling. Some people, it could be going to the movies. Some people like Rosie Guerrero, uh, the famous football player. He liked to do needlepoint and knit. It could, whatever it is for you, if it's painting or if it's, it's photography, I could list a million examples, but you have to have something that you enjoy doing that isn't work and that isn't a job and that doesn't stress you out. You have to find something like that. Dan, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might have a drinking problem if line. <laughs> well, you might have a drinking problem if you're a businessman or businesswoman or business person that the alcohol is incorporated into the fabric of your life, whether it's your work life or your personal life. If it's part of the fabric of your life, 
like the country club folks that think they're exercising when they're golfing, but they're impervious to alcohol, that would be an indicator that you may have a problem. Love it. And you know, I also love the birds in the background. <laughs> That's great. I'm on my porch. Yeah, I'm on my porch. I'm sorry about that. And, yeah. you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful day and you know, I just, uh, you get a little fresh air. I had a little latte that I bought and, you know, I'm just chilling out, but yeah, I think, I think that's the biggest thing. I, I think the other piece of advice is just associate with people that, that have your best interest at heart and it's okay to go, you know, if you go over to their house and they're having a party, I'll pour champagne for people, but you know, nobody's going to just keep pushing me to do it. No, that's all right. You can do whatever you want. You have your, I got Diet Coke over here for you. Cool. You know? Yeah, everybody wants you, Dan, to be the best version of yourself. And the the small few who don't, they got to go. And that's another gift that an alcohol-free life gives us. It could be your family, too. You know, unfortunately, you, you got to do, you know, if people are toxic, you, you got you to jettison them. Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing more thank about you, your Paul. story. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, it's a pleasure listening to you. And you, give, you give me and others a a lot of hope and you get, you know, it's straight sense, common sense. And, uh, and everybody's experience is different. There's no right or wrong. Thanks, Dan. So we are everywhere. And I heard cool experiences similar to Joni's of people when they checked into their hotels before the retreat. For example, a gal checked into the hotel and the receptionist said, Oh, what are you in town for? Uh, the gal hesitates and says, eh, I am here for, uh, an alcohol recovery retreat. The gal says, awesome. Hang on a second. She comes back from the back office. I wrote down some times of some local AA meetings for you. How cool is that? When I was flying back from Seattle a week before the trip on the airplane, I was finalizing the details for the itinerary. The gentleman next to me said, hey, looks like you're planning something. What do you got going on? I told him about the recovery elevator retreat. He goes, cool. I've been sober for 17 years. We are everywhere and all reactions are good. Joni says, usually the reactions are good, like I say. I actually haven't had one negative reaction or I haven't heard of anybody having a negative reaction. And you might say, wait a second, I told somebody and that person left my life. That is extremely rare, but that's not a negative reaction. That's a toxic person leaving your life. That's a person whose energetic vibrational frequency is no longer a match for where you want to go in life. There are no negative outcomes when we burn the ships. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys. 